The Precinct Omega Weekly Podcast is supported by Horizon Wars Zero Dark, sci-fi skirmish war games in a fallen earth. Visit wargamevault at wargamevault.com and search for Zero Dark. It's Friday the 20th of August. My name is Roby Jenkins. Welcome to the Precinct Omega Podcast and to another of my... Bi-weekly, uh, fortnightly I should say, um, design episodes where I pick a topic from the subject of tabletop miniatures design and I opine about it for somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour, sharing some of my thoughts and trying to dig into the weeds of different approaches, why you might follow different approaches, which ways I've chosen for my games, but not necessarily saying that that is the be-all or the end-all of the approach. And this week I'm tackling a topic that I've wanted to tackle for a while, but I've kind of stayed away from, almost almost out of a sort of, um, yeah, fear of this topic. We're going to talk about command and control on miniature wargaming. And the reason I've kind of shied away from this is that it's one of those topics where I I kind of look at my own experience of tabletop miniatures wargaming and the, and the breadth of involvement that I've had and I occasionally think that in this particular area my personal experience of the breadth of options that the range of possible uh, solutions perhaps isn't wide enough. Um, there are a lot of tabletop miniature war games that I haven't played that I know approach this topic differently or, or with their own particular spin. And part of the reason I haven't played those games is because I, I don't particularly like the spin they've taken on this subject. Uh, but as a, as a result, Although I know that there are games like uh, like Black Powder, Hail Caesar, De Bellis Antiquitatis that that have a particular take on how this is done, I, I couldn't tell you precisely how they all do it. Um, and and so I'm going to be talking about methods and approaches to command and control. And some of you watching or listening to this are probably going to say, "Oh yes, that's like." X game, why doesn't he mention them? Well, the answer is, I, I haven't played that game. Um, I'm aware of the breadth of approaches, but I couldn't tell you precisely with any accuracy what goes where. So with that preamble and all of my excuses lined up to start with, let's talk about command and control. So in a military sense, uh, command and control is comes down to three things. The first is the ability of the leadership of a structure to organize that structure towards a purpose in advance. So this is the process, what, what in military terms we talk about the O group or the orders group, where the plan for the mission is laid out in advance with each component of the organization participating in the mission, given their specific roles and tasks to perform, and then sent away to disseminate instructions to their own sections, platoons, companies, whatever it might be. Um, that 
doesn't play a huge part in tabletop wargaming, the O group. You know, at the beginning of a, of a tabletop game, you may look down and have a plan in mind, but generally speaking, there are very few games that actually give their units instructions at the start of the game and then never engage with them again. And there's a very logical reason for that, and that is that would be very dull. Um, because you don't just want to be moving units with no input as, as the player. That's not why we play a game. Um, in practice, that's a lot of how warfare has happened historically. Um, but it's not the only way that's happened. So the first way of command and control is that is that pre-battle O-group. And there, there isn't a huge impact of that part of C2 command and control in um, in a tabletop miniatures war game. So the second part, meanwhile, is is the serious crunchy bit, which is the ability to deliver orders during combat. So to deliver instructions and to influence the behaviour of units and individuals on the tabletop in the course of a game. And that that's the core and the heart of tabletop miniatures wargaming. Don't know why I keep putting the word tabletop before miniatures wargaming. I mean, I mean, okay, theoretically you could play on the floor, but it's still the same game. You know, it's just miniatures wargaming. Um, and the third part is then the ability of the units to feed back information to the commander to influence their um, their decisions and their instructions in the future. And that one, in the most sort of, in the mass market games, doesn't really have a function, but it does turn up in others. And in, in the military parlance, they talk about C3 or C3I, which is command, control, communication, and intelligence. Um, and the communication bit falls down on that third one. We kind of put intelligence aside. It does sometimes play a role in some games, um, but by and large it's not there at the core of the rules. So the first one, orders before the game, generally plays no role. The second one, orders in the middle of a game, that is the game, fundamentally, and we're going to look at that in detail. And then the third one is the option for feedback, communication from the units back to the commander. Generally, We'll talk about that first. The ability to communicate between the unit and the commander is generally replicated by the fact that you, the player, have an overview of the table. You know, you can see where enemy units are. You can see where the terrain is, where the river is, where your regiments or squads or individual soldiers have got to. Your ability to see the table represents the communication back from the units. And... The vast majority of miniatures games essentially present you with perfect information in that respect. Because where I have put a miniature and where my opponent has put a miniature on the table, that's where those are. You know, when I'm measuring range or distance or deciding who's in proximity to somebody else, those locations are precise and exact. They are where the miniature is. So there's very little room in a miniatures war game for 
the commander to be in possession of imperfect information. Now, when we get to the end of this conversation, we'll talk about the fog of war, because this is one of those things that people often throw up when they're talking about what they like or don't like about games. Um, and a lot of war gamers do talk about liking fog of war aspects. But what they usually mean when they say fog of war, I don't want to get into the weeds of fog of war yet, it's coming later, but what people usually mean when they say fog of war is the inability to communicate orders precisely to your units. That is not fog of war. Fog of war is the imprecise nature of a commander's knowledge of what is on the tabletop. Um, if you know where your enemy units are and you know where your units are, you are not suffering from fog of war. If you can't communicate with your units effectively, and we'll talk about that in more detail later, that's not fog of war. That's just poor communication, or imperfect communication, I should say, because if you're playing a Bronze Age battle where you're communicating through trumpets or flags or just shouting loudly, you know, the, it, it's understandable that communication is going to be imperfect. Imperfect communication, fog of war, not the same thing. Okay, that's, that's where we're going to start. Okay, so let's get back now to that, that second point, the core, the heart of what makes a miniatures war game, which is the giving of orders to your units. Now, I'm going to refer down here to my notes because this is the point for the designer where everything starts to, to mesh together and to get interrelated and intertwined. The moment you start thinking about how do I give orders to my units, you're immediately also thinking about things like well, what orders can I give? What can the regiments do? What can my soldiers actually perform as tasks? How well are they going to perform? And how do they go about it? How do my orders affect how well they perform those tasks? And all the mechanics of the game start to get intertwined. So I've tried really, really hard to sort of tease out the, the command and control aspects of the tabletop miniatures game. There's me sticking tabletop in there pointlessly again. The miniatures war game teased out the command and control, tried to leave everything else aside. We've talked about that in, in the past. You can look at past episodes where I talk about different things that you can do, shooting, close combat, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, there are ultimately two different approaches. Uh, either units are directed or they are given orders. And I tried to come up with a better distinction on that. And I could say units just do stuff or units get given suggestions on what to do. That's kind of where it goes. So in your most basic approach to miniatures wargaming, units just do stuff. It's very straightforward. Um, I would like this regiment to advance. Great, that unit has a movement of four, therefore it advances four inches. There we go. That's it. Jobs are good. You know, there's no questioning my orders, there's no imperfection in communication. What I want that unit to do is what that unit does. And most mass market entry-level miniatures games work that way. Um, it's, it's not a coincidence 
that entry-level games work this way and more sophisticated, more mature games work differently. I think most people, when they first engage with a miniatures war game, just want their units to do what they're expected to do. You know, it's, it's not... They don't want to feel frustrated by the performance of their own units. If they want to get frustrated, it, it, it's when those units engage with the enemy. You know, your shooting may not kill as many people as you want it to. Your, your close combat may not go the way you want it to. But that's understandable because that is the classic no plan survives contact with the enemy. You know, that's, that's what we expect to happen. We don't expect our... To, to be saying, hey you, move four inches, and for them to then move eight inches. That's, that introduces an element of frustration to us that I think the entry-level gamer doesn't want, doesn't look for, doesn't appreciate. Now, the more mature gamer, the more... Uh, mature. I, I'm not using mature in the sense of age. I'm using mature in the sense of the gamer who has been around miniatures games for a while. Um and has learned to understand what they like and what they don't like, those gamers actually respond better to having units perform in unexpected ways. And the reason they do that is because it presents them a puzzle to solve. And fundamentally, all miniatures war games are puzzles that are there to be solved. They're like, when you play a miniatures war game against an opponent, as opposed to solo, it's like working on a puzzle that keeps changing itself as you move along because your opponent is reacting. So imagine that you're trying to do a, a Rubik's Cube which keeps moving the colours. That's the, the nature of the puzzle that's trying to be solved on a miniatures war game and, and any tabletop game, really. You're playing against an opponent who keeps changing the puzzle that you're trying to solve. Now... You can make the puzzle more interesting if it's not just the opponent that changes the puzzle. If it's your own army and regiment, all of a sudden the puzzle becomes more challenging when you've got to anticipate the possibility that your regiments and units may not do what you want them to do. So this is still a question of directing units, though. At this point, we haven't got to the more advanced form of giving suggestions. So in this case, I reach out, I wish this unit to move. That unit may move, it may not move, it may move where I want it to, it may not move where I want it to. But fundamentally, I reach out and I direct that unit and it responds. That is the basic format of command and control in a miniatures wargame. And if you're new to miniatures wargame design, I strongly recommend that you start and stop there. Um, there's enough going on in a miniatures wargame without adding unnecessary complexity at this stage of the process. However, if you do want something a little bit more, dare I say, sophisticated, um, certainly complex, more complex, not necessarily more sophisticated, to be fair, but certainly more complex, at that point you may get to the stage of giving orders. And this is... When I was serving as an officer, I, I had a, a catchphrase, uh, which was, just because I say please, don't mistake it for a suggestion. Um, but in practice, all orders are suggestions. 
a, an officer or a commander who is giving instructions, giving orders to their subordinates, even though their expectation is that those orders will be followed to the letter, the person whom they are ordering is still a human being with a, a human mind that is independent and fallible. And as a result, all orders are fundamentally suggestions. The, the degree to which that order is followed to the letter depends on two factors. One, the relationship between the commander and the subordinate. And two, the quality of the order that is given. You know? If a trusted commander issues an order that makes perfect, logical, tactical, strategic sense, then the subordinate will follow that order very closely. If, on the other hand, an order is given by an untrusted commander, regardless of how logical or tactically intelligent it is, there's a higher chance that the subordinate will do something else. And equally, if a trusted commander gives a poor order, the odds that that order will be followed diminishes. Then, obviously, if an untrusted commander gives a bad order, the chances of that order being followed are very, very low indeed. That's how orders work. That's just how it works. Now, we can build that into tabletop miniatures wargaming. God, putting tabletop in again. Sorry, I'll break myself of it eventually. Miniatures wargames. Okay, so you can give orders in miniatures wargames. And when I say orders, this is when we're getting into the realms of real imperfect, well, not necessarily imperfect communication, but where you start to get ways and options for, for restricting the ability of the player to perfectly instruct their units on the tabletop. And there are broadly two different directions to go in here. Now you can break them down and there's there's more nuance within it, but we've got to keep this podcast to a limit. So there are broadly two directions you can go. You can either go towards a resource of orders based upon the general or a resource of orders based upon the army. Now we'll come back to the general in a minute. We'll talk about the pool that the resource of orders based upon the army, because there's at least one game that I know very well that does this very explicitly, and that's Infinity the Game. So Infinity the Game, each unit choice, each uh, individual that you add to your small army, which is usually sort of like between 8 and 15 miniatures, each individual adds an order to your player's pool of orders that can be given. And those orders come in different varieties depending on the choice of unit. So the most basic is you get regular orders and irregular orders. And how you use those will vary. Um, in Infinity the game, basically the difference is an irregular order can only ever be given to the miniature that generated that order. So if you've got, say, a Hunzekut skirmisher that generates an irregular order, I honestly can't remember if Hunzekuts are still irregular, they used to be, um, then you can only use that irregular order for that Hunzekut to do a thing, whatever that thing might be. An irregular order, on the other hand, can be given to 
anybody, including models that have already had an order. So if we go back to our Hunzakut, let's say I've got a Hunzakut that's generated an irregular order and a Gulam that's generated a regular order, I use the irregular order to instruct the Hunzakut to move to a firing location. I can then use that regular order on the Hunzakut again for that Hunzakut to perform a second action. The Gulam who generated that order doesn't have any claim upon using that order. It's, uh, it's a really interesting tactical, strategic as well, uh, mechanic that Corvus Belli has devised. It doesn't bear a huge relationship to anything in terms of real military activity. Um, it, it's quite an abstract approach. As you know, I'm, I've got no problem with abstract approaches. I like to get the sense that they're trying to capture something of uh, real military behaviour. In Infinity, the game, much as I love it, that is quite a gamey approach, so that you're, when you're building your army, you're balancing your regular and irregular orders. Irregular orders obviously come at a, a price reduction on the ability of the unit, so you can get very cheap units that do some quite cool stuff, but they only bring an irregular order. You know, it's it's it kind of captures the idea that your irregulars are going to go off and do their own thing, regardless of what's best for the mission. And there is an ability to turn irregular orders into regular orders that represents the um, sort of tactical charisma of the leader. The lieutenant in the army. So I suppose, to be fair, I, I will backtrack a little bit and say yes, it is abstract. It does kind of feed back into a narrative thing. Whether it's a narrative thing that resembles real combat or just a a more appropriately sort of fictionalized mangerish interpretation of combat is arguable. It is arguable. Um, that's a really good illustration of that first way of approaching a flexible concept of orders generated by the army itself. A more common approach, particularly in historical wargaming, is orders generated by your general. So your general will have some kind of quality, whether it's a leadership or a command stat, or some kind of pool of resources, or or a character. I mean, there are some games where you randomly generate the character of your leader at the start of the battle to determine are they, you know, brilliant and charismatic, or are they cowardly and idiotic. Um, and that will then dictate their relationship with, with their forces. And the general then may bring with them a some kind of... I'm going to call it a pool of resources. In the same way that in Infinity you have an army that has a pool of orders, you could ignore the army and just look at the general. The general has the ability to issue, say, six orders or eight orders or ten orders per turn. Now, if you only have five units and you've got ten orders, you can make each unit do two things, because that's the nature of your general. If you've got 12 units, well, two units aren't going to do anything or, or they may perform a default action of some sort. 
Um, so that's, that's where the general influences the pool of units. We'll come back to the general and move back to the army for a second. So the army generates units. The most basic approach, as I said, is a unit creates one order. And in some respects, this is... If I reluctantly accept the idea that Warhammer 40,000 is fundamentally the default miniatures war game, that's the approach that 40k takes. Now, they don't express it in those terms, because in your turn, each unit in your army just does a thing. But fundamentally, what it does is it generates a, a pool of one order per unit. And you then issue that order, and your unit does the thing. It's, it's, it's back to just directing units. That's the fundamentally basic version, is a unit has an order, it, you give the order, it does the thing. But as a designer, you should think that if you imagine it as a pool, rather than simply the ability to activate each unit once per turn... If you think of it as a pool, you immediately start to see ways where you can manipulate that pool. Either you can add more orders to your pool, take orders away, sacrifice orders, have different kinds of orders, and at that point the design process begins to start and you start to be able to influence the nature, the, the character of the game that you're designing by thinking about the orders that are given as a pool. You can then tie that one unit per action thing back to our other side, which is the general over here. So it may be that you combine the two. So you have one order per unit, but the ability of the general to actually communicate those orders may vary. Or you may have some other framework in place to represent imperfect communication. Now, a good example of this is Bolt Action and their order draw system, which has been borrowed by a few other games. So in that, you have a bag, a blind bag full of counters. In Bolt Action's case, it's, it's dice, dice of different colours for each side. Each turn, or each activation you reach in, you pull out a dice. The colour of the dice tells you whose dice it is. <clears throat> I then take my dice and decide which of my units I'm going to activate with that dice. Now, in a turn, you know all of your units will have a chance to activate, <coughs> assuming they're all alive by the end of the turn. But you don't know the order in which the dice are going to come out. It's randomised. But although it's randomised, there are still ways for the general to influence that. Now, I genuinely don't know if Bolt Action does this, because I've never played Bolt Action, but... Just because you're pulling one dice at a time out of a bag doesn't mean you don't have influence. There are two ways you can influence it. First, you can take more than one dice. So if you were, for example, able to draw two dice from a bag each turn and decide which one is drawn, that is an immediate significant tactical advantage. So if a player can draw two dice and then go, I'm going to put that one back in and choose this one. You must activate, or no, I am going to activate. 
that's a big influence. If you could draw three, even more so. Once you sort of get beyond three dice, it, it, it almost becomes where you just decide who activates next, which is the other option. The other way of influencing the random draw is to simply remove the randomness from it. You simply open the bag, you look in, and you, the player, decide which dice are you going to take out. Now, I think as a designer, uh, if I were going to have a bag draw system, which I genuinely wouldn't have, I don't think, unless unless it was a game that I really wanted to be quite random in feel. Um, if I were going to introduce a mechanic like that, that allowed one player to draw more than one dice, or one player to pick the dice, I, I think it would have to be quite limited. I think if you had one player being able to draw two dice every activation, it could severely hamper um, not just the the feel of the game, but also the experience of the other player. Uh, and then, of course, you have to deconflict. well, what if both players can draw two dice? What, does that just cancel each other out and they go back to drawing one at random? Or do they alternate turns? Um, yeah, so it's, it's... I'd approach that with caution. It's an option, and it's a thing that can be done, but I'd approach it with caution. Um, but that's an example where even a random draw can be influenced by your choice of general or your choice of army or the, the scenario that you're playing, whatever it might be. The other option there, if we put the, the random draw aside, if we just go back to having our pool of orders, the question on whether I can issue an order can further be randomised by having generals test to see if they can draw from the pool. So this is where your army is creating the pool but your general is determining how easily and how rapidly you can draw from the pool. So you might, for example, say have a general test at the start of a, a, an activation, they make a command check, and the, the quality of their success dictates how many orders they can draw from the pool for that turn or activation. So a single success or basic success is one order. If they get a plus two or a plus four or whatever the success, that will then dictate that they can draw more orders from the pool. And that would represent a, a, a general who has, you know, a very efficient and tight command of their force, who is able to coordinate the actions of more than one unit at a given time. So that's where we get the army pool and the general pool kind of forming a hybrid. Let's put the general aside for a second again and go back to the army pool, because I talked about... Uh, one unit, one action. And that's fundamentally, that's the basic framework for a miniatures war game. Infinity, I mentioned before, they make it slightly more sophisticated by having one unit, one order, but there's a variety of different orders available, be they regular, irregular, or impetuous. I don't know if they still have extremely impetuous. I think they've called it something else now. Anyway, they get a variety of different flavours of order that units generate. But you can also have arrangements where certain units generate more or fewer orders. So it may be that you would say, well, in my game, each unit's going to generate two orders by default. And so they can do two things per activation. But some are only going to generate one. So let's say your regular forces generate two, but your levy... Your peasant levy only generates one, but your elite veterans generate three. Or they generate two, but each activation there's a chance that they generate a third one. 
whatever it might be, something along those lines. So that's where you get sort of variable quantities of orders that are generated in your pool. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned, you've got variable order types. So you've got units that can order. And in, in Infinity, we've got this idea of regular and irregular orders and the various other sorts, which dictate fundamentally the timing with which orders are played. But you could also play with types of order in terms of what that unit can do. So you may, for example, have, say, each unit generates two orders. One of those orders is generic and can be used for anything, but one of them is specific to the role of that unit. So your unit of, uh, I don't know, knights, for example, is going to generate a combat action every turn. So... Either they're in combat and they get to use that order, or they're not in combat. So you don't use it. You, you lose that order. If they're not in combat, they can't use it. They can't fight. Um, but if they're in combat, they get to use their combat order, and they've got another generic order that they can use as well, because they're more effective when they're engaged in the melee, swinging their swords and their maces the way they've been trained to. For example, uh, you could even have conditional orders. So that, you know, some, some units only generate a single order, but under certain conditions, they generate a second one. So your skirmishers, for example, they generate one order per turn, but if no enemy unit has got line of sight to that regiment, they generate a second order to represent the fact that they can move faster or, you know, take up sniper positions or whatever you want to talk about. That's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Different types of orders. Uh, I think I've covered all the points I wanted to talk about there. Good, let's go back to the generals. Um, one of the things that... So I've talked a lot about armies generating pools of orders. But generally, when you're in that scenario, it's hard to make an argument for the failure to generate an order unless you've associated some sort of test to it. When you go to the generals, it's all about character. It's all about their training, their discipline, their class, you know, how, how accustomed to leadership uh, and command are they. And so that's where you really get the opportunity to bring in an element of random testing to see how effective their orders are. And the... Uh, Commander, therefore, can be tested. So you can have this lovely scenario where the general may draw orders from the pool and issue orders to the units, but now we've got a test to see, has that order been clearly understood? Has the general expressed themselves clearly? Has their subordinate commander understood the order? This is the point at which, on an abstract level, we're tapping back into that first element of command and control, that original orders group. So you imagine at the start or before the battle, the general gets their commanders in, they all sit around, have a cup of tea, look at a map, and the general now says, right, you, this is what I want you to do in this mission. You're going to complete this particular role. Your main effort is going to be this. If in doubt, you know, revert to the following things. This is what you're going to do. Yes, sir, I understand. Brilliant, go away. Now the battle is taking place. That commander is under pressure. There's a runner has come down from the general, handed him a scribbled note that says, 
complete action thought or follow the instructions I gave you or, or even just some sort of vague instruction to, you know, outflank the grenadiers. Yeah, whatever it might be. At that point, the quality of that first orders group is in the mind of this regimental commander who is then thinking, oh, okay, this note says X, or, or maybe the messenger got shot on the way and his note is flown away in the wind. Oh, no, my boss is trying to give me orders, but the note is flown away. I can't read it, or I don't understand what I've got in my hands. What am I going to do? I revert to the instructions I got at the orders group. The orders group was, my main effort was destroy the grenadiers on the left flank. Right, great. I may or may not have got the right instructions, but I know he wanted me to destroy the grenadiers on the left flank. I shall advance into the grenadiers and I shall destroy them. That is my decision. So this is where we get to test the general. Um, and that's abstracted into you know, a, a leadership or a command test as to how effective was their order. And this is the success-failure uh, dichotomy. Success for a designer is broadly less interesting than failure. So success is, I have given an order, I pass my test, the order is followed, it is completed. Or I've given an order, there is no test, I've given an order, the task is completed. It's simple, and it has, there's a lot to be said for the value of simplicity if a game doesn't require greater complexity. So it's simple, it's straightforward, it happens, but from a designer's perspective, it is quite dull. Failure is much more interesting, and the consequences of failure. The basic solution, and by far the least interesting and least realistic solution of failure, is uh, nothing happens. So the runner has come down the hill, I've seen him, he's been shot by a sniper, his orders have tumbled from his hand and blown away in the wind. <gasps> As the leader, what am I going to do? Well, nothing. I'm not going to do anything. Uh, I'll wait for the next runner to tell me what I'm supposed to do. Now I'm just going to stand here and do nothing. That seems extremely improbable to me. Not impossible. Not impossible. If a, if a commander was actively malicious or, or completely disrespected their general and had no faith in their ability to lead and actively wanted to see the general fail, I could believe it could happen. Um, if a regiment or unit wasn't completely committed, I think back to, I ought to know this Battle of Bosworth, I think it was, my brain is saying Thomas Fairfax, but I could have that completely wrong. Somebody turned up to the Battle of Bosworth and nobody was quite sure what side they were on. Uh, 22nd of August, 1485, just in case you're wondering. Um, turned up and basically watched the battle happening to decide which side they were going to pitch in on. And when... <laughs> When they could see that Henry Tudor uh, had the edge over Richard III of York, uh, they pitched in on Henry's side, and sure enough, Henry won. Um, so just about you could imagine that that kind of thing happening. Um, it could be the Nobby Nobs scenario. Um, if, if you know your Terry Pratchett, Nobby just stands back to get a sense of who's winning and then puts on the right uniform. Um, but in the majority of cases, it's not going to happen. In, in practical terms, if a commander knows that there is something expected of them, but they're not sure what it is, they're going to have a stab. They're, they're going to have a guess. And there, as a designer, you then get 
the fun of working out how will I determine what that particular regiment is going to do in the absence of orders. Uh, I wrote a game many years ago called Scrapyard, which I've mentioned a few times. In Scrapyard, uh, it's determined by whatever the highest stat is of the unit at the time. So, and, and stats can go up and down in the course of a battle, as often happens, uh, certainly with my games. Um, but in this case, as a player, you look, what's their highest stat? Their highest stat dictates what they do. The design principle there being, if all you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So, if what you're good at is shooting, and you're not sure what to do, you're going to shoot. If what you're good at is moving, and you're not sure what you're to do, you're going to move. Uh, if you're not sure... <laughs> that, that, that's broadly the, the principle that applies. I can't remember all the options and stats. There weren't many. You know I don't do many stats in my games. Um, I think there were four. Again, it wasn't MFAD, it was something else. But that was how it was determined. The only uh, character in Scrapyard that you could always rely on to do what you wanted was the leader, um, and everybody else, you, you had to manoeuvre and position them carefully to make sure they did what you wanted, otherwise they would only ever do their default action. Uh, it's it's an alright idea. It, it worked well. Uh, but there are other ways to do it. You can do it uh, on a table, on a dice on a table. You can roll a dice. And even that, you know, because obviously a dice may be too random for you, you can have a dice roll that's modified by the type of unit. So at, you know, six is charge the nearest enemy, and one is do nothing. Um, with, with everything in between depending, you can say, you know, oh yeah, well my... My sniper has minus two on the dice roll, so they're more likely to veer towards doing nothing, whereas my cavalry knight has got plus two. They're more likely to default towards charging the enemy. You know, so you can always manipulate the outcomes, even of a random table. Um, other options is you could have it. You know, you could have a decision tree for every regiment or unit. It's a little bit cumbersome, but you can do it. You can have decision trees for types of regiment or unit. Or, one option, which is always worth thinking about, is you could institute a form of O-group, orders group. At the start of the battle, you either select or write a decision tree, um, which represents the O-group of the general. So you write a decision tree of, say, four steps. If you are within this range of an enemy, do this. Yes, no. Are you within this range of an enemy? Yes, no, do this. Are you in combat? Have you lost so many soldiers? You know, whatever the decision tree could be, you know, is your strength under 50%? Yes, retreat. You know, that's the default solution. So if you fail to give orders, you just pull out the decision tree and it's, it's part of your orders group for everybody on the table. It's potentially an interesting approach. Uh, particularly if you can come up with a, a clever way of quickly writing one of these decision trees to draw in that O group, which to my knowledge no other no game really really captures that sense of having a consultation with your commanders before a battle. It's all kind of built into the process of the game itself. But that that could capture that O group experience. Uh, have I covered everything I wanted to? Yes, I have. 
I have got through all of my notes. That's everything I wanted to talk to you about command and control. Um, I, there are bits of the weeds that I could dig down into, but I'll be honest, the, the precise nature of them is going to vary depending on the kind of the kind of game you're trying to write. And, and so I could talk endlessly about the nuances, uh, but I'm not sure it would necessarily be helpful to you, my audience. So, having got this far, we will finally wind back to the subject, the topic at the beginning that I said I would get to, which is the fog of war. Now, I've already told you what the fog of war is not. The fog of war is not imperfect communication uh, with your units. The fog of war is an imperfect knowledge of the locations and behaviour of the enemy, hence why it's called fog. Um, now, it doesn't literally, or it doesn't always literally mean your vision is obscured. Uh, the, the fact is that battle is chaotic, and it's not always possible to know what's going on on every part of the battlefield. A large part of modern C3I technology has been dedicated towards trying to eliminate the fog of war as much as possible in order to give commanders the most perfect understanding of the battlefield at hand. First thing I have to say is that perfect knowledge is not necessarily, in a, in a real war scenario, not necessarily an advantage. Uh, there is a problem that I used to hear about, uh, referred to in my army days, as the long screwdriver conundrum. And that is the temptation amongst senior commanders when they are aware of something happening several steps down from their command level to interfere. That is to reach with their long screwdriver and, and twiddle what's going on a long way away from them. And the metaphor works brilliantly because on the one hand it's ludicrous. The idea of the long screwdriver is ludicrous and the reason it's ludicrous is because you can't accurately tweak something easily from that far up or from that great distance. You need to be close to something to effectively use a screwdriver. And it's just the same in command. If a, if a, a general commanding a you know, multi-battalion battle group knows exactly what a frontline infantry soldier can see through the sights of his rifle because that's being seen by a camera that's being fed back through a battle net onto a screen in front of the general. You don't want a general being able to pick up a phone and speak directly to that soldier telling him where to shoot. That that isn't the role of a general, and it isn't the job of a soldier to wait to be told where to shoot. Um, now, I would make exception to that if you get into the scenario of synthetic soldiers, then maybe that makes more sense, that occasionally, rather than relying upon an individual robot's engagement algorithm, you might want to have the ability to have a human commander at a higher level intervene and give directions that are contrary to the normal algorithmic conclusions. Definitely that's the case, but even then there's a limit to how far up the chain you need to be able to go before 
the general loses sight of the bigger picture and becomes too focused upon the precise. Um, and that is a, a function of the fog of war that is positively helpful. Um, in real combat, you need to leave room for individual frontline decision makers to make the decisions that have been delegated to them. So to the individual infantrymen, they must make the decision. Shall I shoot my target or shall I not shoot my target? Will I pull my trigger? They may be given an order by their fire team commander or their section leader or their platoon commander, but ultimately they are a human being making a decision. The platoon commander may be saying, put down fire, you know, rapid fire now on that location, but that soldier looking through his sight unit can see that there is a child playing in that space. And he is not going to pull that trigger because that is the decision he is going to make. No, I'm not going to shoot that 12-year-old child or that baby or, or even that confused-looking teenager. Now, whatever the decision may be, the soldier makes the decision. All orders ultimately are suggestions. Uh, consequences may arise from that, of course, but imperfect. Uh, but similarly, the general can't have their decisions dictated to them by an individual soldier. You know, that individual soldier may be saying, you must call off the airstrike. Well, that's intelligence for the general, but the general doesn't take orders from the soldier. So fog of war has a practical and valuable contribution to make to the conduct of strategic warfare. But on the tabletop, how do you introduce imperfect information? Um, and the short answer is it is actually very hard. Imperfect communication is a piece of cake. You can introduce imperfect communication all over the place. But as I said, that is not fog of war. Fog of war is imperfect information. Now, I have done it to an extent in Horizon War Zero Dark. If you look at how the Red Force operates in Horizon War Zero Dark, the Red Force, the, the distribution of the Red Force on the tabletop is imperfect information. Um, the whole point about Zero Dark is it takes place in low light conditions, in confusing environments, where the precise locations and dispositions of the enemy is not fully understood by the player or players. And the Red Force is the... Uh, third party that's controlled by the deck of playing cards that tells you who's going to activate and what they're going to do. And one of the things that often comes out is people will say, well, that, that unit moved in an illogical way. Why would it move that way? Or how does a defence mech just appear an, an inch away from my hero? Um, surely they would have noticed a, a robot there at this point. Well, that's where I say fog of war. That's where I say... You know, well, you don't have perfect information about where everything is. And if those reinforcements suddenly appear from nowhere, it's not like they teleported in. Well, they might have done. It's a sci-fi setting. But it's not that they just teleported in from nowhere. It's that your understanding of the tactical situation has suddenly changed. And you have become aware of an additional complication on the tabletop. Uh, likewise with their movement around, you know, it's not necessarily that that particular 
enemy soldier has moved that distance, it may be that you thought they were on that side of the wall. But now they've turned up to be on this side of the wall unexpectedly. It's not that they moved, it's that your understanding of where they are has changed. Isn't necessarily correct, it's just different. But even though that was always my design intent with the Red Force, that hasn't been well understood by players who tend to default to the Warhammer 40,000 standard of where there is an orc, that's where the orc is. Therefore, where there is a grunt or an elite or a boss bogey in, in Zero Dark, that is where they are. They may or may not be, is my answer. That's, that's the fog of war. But it's hard for players to intuitively understand that because there is this tendency to go, no, I can see it, that's its location. And of course, in the versus form of the game, because you've got two players fighting against each other with a red force probably in between them, your knowledge of where your opponents, your human opponents' forces are, is perfect. Because where they've put someone must be where they've put someone. You can't have imperfect information. So I can only introduce Fog of War in Zero Dark because there's a red force that doesn't belong to a player. And so you can uh, manipulate the probabilities that way. How you would go about truly introducing Fog of War in a PvP, pure PvP game, it would be very hard. Um... I mean, there is literal fog of war, which you can introduce from terrain. This happens in Infinity all the time, that people actually, you know, they'll deploy their units inside a building and then forget that it's there because they can't see it. Um, that was something that I learned in, uh, in tournament play. Even though it may make tactical sense to deploy inside a building, never deploy inside a building because you will forget that they are there and you will lose that order and you'll use that, lose that unit until you're clearing up the table at the end and you lift the roof off and you go, oh... Yeah, I had a sniper in there all along, I forgot. I mean, that is true fog of war. That is absolutely natural, organically made, farm-grown fog of war. But it's not something that designers can really practically introduce naturally into the game. Um, I mean, there are ways you could do it, but whether it's it would introduce frustration to the players to not know precisely where whether where they're putting their unit is actually where the unit is, I, I think that would turn off players more than it would interest and excite them. Uh, so generally speaking, my gut when it comes to Fog of War is that it's something that you can definitely do in solo and cooperative play. You can do it in PvP where there is some non-player third party, Game Master, obviously, you know, in, in a game like Inquisitor with a, with a third-party GM, there's lots of room for Fog of War. Um, but whether you can really do it in a pure miniatures war game, PvP, standard, bolt action, Gates of Antares, Infinity, eh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that you, you could without frustrating the players too much and driving them away from the game. So, those are my thoughts on Command and Control, and I've touched upon Fog of War, what I think it is, what I think it isn't. Maybe you disagree with me, maybe you think I'm completely wrong, and imperfect communication is also a part of the Fog of War. Um, 
and and I can tell you you're wrong. Either way, put it in the comments on the YouTube video, or you can add comments to the Podbean version of this podcast, or you can email me at precinctomega at gmail.com. But if you really want to get my attention, uh, the best way is to be a patron. Please do consider clicking the link in the comments below and coming along and supporting my Patreon campaign because that is what keeps this podcast on the road. Uh, and, and I am uh, struggling a little bit right now to keep this podcast on the road. So I would appreciate your support. If you've got anything else to feedback, if you've got any subjects, topics you think I should cover in the design component that you would like me to hear about, again, let me know at any of those locations. Next week, we'll be back looking at the news. And because I did the Big Games Workshop thing uh, last week, and then I did tax the week before that, uh, I've got weeks of interesting news to catch up on, so it should be an interesting one. I can't wait to see what I get to talk to you about next week. Uh, I'm also dropping a an extra video shortly onto YouTube. I caught up with one of my patrons recently who is trying to write a game of his own, not for publication, just for his own satisfaction, but he had some questions about how to get started and, and where to start building the game. Um, so he and I sat down, we had a chat for about an hour. It was transatlantic, so it was a bit of an imperfect recording, but I'm going to try and uh, bodge that together so that you guys can see our conversation and, uh, and get a sense of how I go about taking a design brief and turning it into a, a workable, well, the workable seeds of a game for my friend Tony to pick up and finish off on his own. Right, Brill, thank you for joining me, and uh, I will speak to you again next week. The Precinct Omega Game Design Podcast is supported by our patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Precinct Omega to help us continue developing new games and creating hobby content for war games enthusiasts all over the world. <laughs>